Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You know, the, these are the recipes that I grew up with. They're old recipes. They're from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. They're generations in my family. And you will eat satisfying, healthy food. And you will not feel like you're missing out on anything if you follow the simple instructions of how to make the food. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 146.5. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, hey, veggie lovers. Welcome to a bonus episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Today I have with me Raidel Hernandez, also known as Ray. Super cool. So I found out about him when he reached out to me about his book. It's delicious. It's vegan. It's Cuban. And he has such a great story that I know you're going to love. I just love hearing about his background, his grandparents, and, you know, this evolution, this journey that he went on since he was a little kid and his grandparents experiencing health problems that were likely influenced by their diet and lifestyle choices and you know the time that it took for him to learn more about food and its relationship to our health so it's a really great story i know that you're really going to enjoy this and i think this is particularly good for anybody who feels like it would be impossible for them to eat a plant-based diet or to become vegan because of their cultural traditions so I think that he is a great example of how it is possible and how you can you can make it work for you. So, you know, definitely stick around if you're interested in hearing more about him. I just want to thank you for being a loyal listener of Veggie Doctor Radio. Please don't forget to subscribe, to give me a rating and a review. I appreciate those so much. And I love getting shout outs to all of you that leave me reviews on my podcast and on my book. So let me tell you more about Ray. 
So Ray is a first-generation Cuban-American home cook and culinary author. His dishes are authentic, delicious, and distinctly Cuban. Heavily influenced by traditional Cuban cooking, Raidel's culinary sensibilities were shaped by his family experience, primarily his grandmother, Bilad Mejido. After learning how to cook Cuban food using traditional ingredients, Raidel became a strict vegetarian and spent 10 years experimenting with plant-based ingredients to achieve a Cuban-slash-vegan fusion, which maintains the integrity and delicious flavors of the original recipes, all with the goal of promoting a long and healthy life through the foods we eat. I love that so much. His website is Vegan Cubano, so V-E-G-A-N-C-U-B-A-N-O.com. So check it out if you want a copy of his book. I have not yet made any of the recipes in his book, but I have a couple that I have flagged and one that he recommended that I make as well. So I'm definitely going to be making those and I will share that with you on socials. So if you don't already follow me on Instagram or Facebook, I'm at the Dr. Yami. Follow me so that you can see my pictures of when I make these recipes. So like I said, we talk about his grandparents, we talk about the influence that their health had on his beliefs about health, how he encountered his own health problems, how he was able to transition into a plant-based diet, what was the hardest part of his transition. And then we talk about Cuban food, we talk about why it's unique, what are the cultural influences on the cuisine and his favorite recipes. And he also gives tips for someone who feels that they could just never change, they could never go vegan because of their culture. And so it's a great conversation. I know you're going to love it. Again, thank you so much for being here, for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and love you. And now on to this conversation. I hope that you enjoy it and have a very plantastic day. I am so excited to talk to Raidel Hernandez, aka Ray. I just want to make sure I pronounce it like authentic, you know, because I'm Latin American. So sometimes it's hard for me to mispronounce people's names the way it's supposed to be Americanized, you know, but here we are, Ray. Thank you so much for joining me. I cannot wait to hear more of your story. Thanks for having me. Like I said before, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Well, I've read your book. It's delicious. It's vegan. It's Cuban, a cookbook for people who want to be vegetarian, vegan, but don't know how to start. And you have a super interesting story. But before we launch more into what specifically brought you to veganism, Let's talk about your grandparents and the influence they had on your life. Well, um, I was raised by them. Uh, They had to leave Cuba, I'd say around 1960. Uh, I believe 59 is when Castro took over and put Cuba under communist rule. Uh, So shortly thereafter, um, they left. Uh, They left with the clothes on their backs and suitcases and whatever money they can have because communism doesn't uh doesn't leave room for negotiation they just take everything and you have to kind of live the way they want you to live and they were capitalists so they were targeted and um they had to leave as quickly as possible so luckily for my family my grandfather uh has du- well had dual citizenship he was from spain originally uh and through spain he was able to get his family out to the canary islands and then from the canary islands of 
all the beautiful places in the world from the Canary Islands. They managed to go to Yonkers, New York. Um, I think because there was a Cuban population there. Um, so they landed there and, um, you know, within that Cuban community in, in Yonkers, my mother met my father. Uh, they had me and, um, not long after they got divorced and my mother had to work. So my, I was raised primarily by my grandparents while they were alive. Um, so my grandmother in particular had an amazing amount of influence on me because I spent most of my time with her as a child. Um, and I learned, I learned her values. I learned older people's values. And I think that really uh, has helped me through my life because, um, you know, when you meet someone that loses everything to a political ideology, you get a real perspective on life and what's important. And um, I got that from my grandparents. And I'm very grateful to have been raised um, even though, you know, even though I'm an indirect victim of communism, if you think about it, um, I'm very grateful that it happened the way it happened because I was raised by really good people. And my grandmother's family, she had like nine sisters. So we had all these grand aunts and grand uncles that used to come to the house all the time. And I got perspective from them. And, uh, you know, I, I got to say I was lucky in, in that regard because I, I think I, I feel like I think differently than most people. Um, and I think it's because of that connection to, you know, the generation that precedes my mother's generation, obviously. I mean, my mom is great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, she's a nice lady and all. But the older people just seem to, they live through it. And they raised my mother. So it's kind of hard to, like, one has a little more weight than the other, I think. And that's how I feel about them. Wow. And it, it sounds like you had such a fun childhood. And I love your descriptions of these get togethers and all, like you said, all of these different family members that you can learn from. But, you know, you have a point. I think sometimes when we go through things, especially when we go through difficult things, it does give us a wisdom that we're able to pass down through the generations. And it sounds like your grandparents had that. But I agree, the Canary Island sounds really awesome. So I'm not yeah. sure why they chose to leave there <laughs> and yeah. but you know you ended up you know in yonkers and tell me about your grandmother and the cooking and it, it sounds so amazing that she just made everything from scratch and there was no like boxed meals or microwave dinners talk a little bit about growing up with that well my grandmother um she well, how do i say this nobody wanted to leave cuba Okay, everybody had happy lives in Cuba. They were all successful people. They loved the island. They loved the cuisine. They loved being Cuban, and they were forced to leave. Um, and I think that, although no one ever talked about it, I'm, I'm sure that that weighed on them heavily because it would weigh on me. I mean, if I had to leave the United States, I would never be the same again. So my grandmother, I, I believe, she kept the Cuban tradition. Um, through the food. So she connected all of us to old Cuba with all these old recipes. And when she would cook them, um, I mean, many times I would watch her cook these meals as I would come home from school. And uh, she would tell me like the first time she had this meal or where she found it. Like if there was a restaurant that she visited in Cuba, she would ask for the recipe and uh, she would get it. And, you know, I, I just feel like she connected us all to that past life through the food and 
you know, there was always no shortage of, you know, 1950s salsa music being played in my house. And all of those things together kind of create an environment that's not quite American. It's, I mean, we were in Yonkers, but we were kind of like in little Cuba in our house, you know. And it was very important for them. Um, you know, like I said, my grandfather was a Spaniard. And um, my grandfather's story is an interesting one, too. I should write a book about him because uh, he left Spain when he was a child. He was 13 years old, and he had to go on a boat, uh, one of those giant cruisers in steerage. He was actually had to go on the bottom of the boat because that's all they can afford. So his parents sent him to Cuba at 13 because of the civil war in Spain. Uh, and then he landed in Cuba. So my grandmother made it a mission for him as well to create foods that he remembered from Spain. So all my life, I've had either Spanish food or authentic Cuban food. And that's how I grew up. Um, and like I say in my book, and it's true, there was no packaged foods. There was no hot dogs. There was no peanut butter and jelly. There was no pizza. I don't think I had peanut butter and jelly until I was close to 20. And when I would go to people's homes, um, that was culture shock. Like when I would go to my friend's house and, you know, what they would have for lunch or for an afternoon snack was like a tuna fish sandwich. I mean, we, we never had that. We had, you know, beans and rice and, and carne molida and all. The refrigerator was always full of, of food and it was always Cuban food. So I didn't know anything. I thought everybody ate like that. So when I would go to someone else's house, I'm like, oh, you know, do your parents love you? I mean, is this, <laughs> is this what you're eating? But um, that's the way it was. And I, I, I want to keep that tradition. Um, I cook. I can't cook every day because my life doesn't allow me to. But I cook on the weekends. And we try to have the same, same food. Not the same food. We try to um, have prepared meals so that we can eat every day together and not have to cook. But everything is Cuban. I mean, there is an occasional meal that isn't, but for the most part, we try to keep everything true to, to the past and the connection. That's so lovely. It, your grandmother was able to just bring in this richness of history. She's telling you these stories of when she had this food and connecting that to the culture and trying to make everybody feel at home, you know, and loved. Yeah. And you could feel that. You're like, I can feel that my grandmother loves me by the care that she puts into preparing this food for me. So when you went to your friend's houses, you're like, wait, do your parents like <laughs> you? What's going yeah. on here? It's just a was... completely different way of being raised, but what, what a beautiful way that you got that. And then you were able to acquire that from your grandmother too, that attention to the care of food, the preparing delicious food. Well, tell me a little bit about what happened. So your grandfather had a health event when he was young, and then your grandmother also experienced health problems. Tell me a little bit about that and what was going through your mind when you learned about it. Well, my grandfather, he died of a stroke and he was young. I think he was 64. I think he was 63 or 64. I don't remember him that much because he, he passed away when I was seven. Uh, but I do remember when he had the stroke, he had it in the house and I was home and it was scary. I mean, he fell on the ground. I didn't know what was going on. I was just a little kid. Uh, but I'll never forget my mother. And this must have been very, this must have been very, very shocking for my mom when I think about it now, because, you know, when you have a parent pass away, it's, it's always terrible. But it seemed to have been compounded because they were taken from their home and here they are in a new place. And they're, you know, I mean, literally, he died in 19, 
78, I think it was. So they had only been in the United States, you know, 15 years, 16 years. So it was not new, but it still wasn't, yeah, it was still fairly new, I guess. I mean, and then now your parents die in a country that you're not really, you weren't born in. So I think that kind of compounded on her. But I remember when he passed away and she came home from uh, the hospital and she was destroyed. But we just, like, back then, not as much was known about these diseases. So you just kind of, uh, you just kind of accepted the fact that he died. You know, he was never sick. He was always, I'm kind of built like him. He's stocky and, like, I don't work out as much as I used to, but my grandfather never worked out. And he was always a big, not a big, huge man, but he was a thick man. Like, you can tell that he was strong. And uh, one day, his arm got a little bit numb, and he decided he didn't want to go to the doctor, and the next day he had the stroke. Um, and it was a shame. It was a big shock. I remember the entire family came to our house. Everybody came to the house because uh, my grandfather was loved. Um, because he was instrumental in, re in getting everybody out of Cuba. I mean, he was one of those people that, you know, for the sake of his wife, my grandmother, he got all her sisters out, all of them, with the exception of one who was a communist. She stayed. Um, yeah, Lola was a communist. We don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. She stayed, but he, he spent money and time getting her family out. And, uh, you know, when he passed away, it was a big shock. And then, you know, now that I know what I know about veganism and your diet, I realize that they poison themselves with their own food because shortly thereafter she got sick. So he died in 78. And by the time she was 55, which was not that, I mean, he passed away at 64. So she was about 55. She got sick with colon cancer. And um, it took about six years to for it to take hold and and take her completely away she uh she disintegrated it started in her colon and then it metastasized slowly over time over the course of six years they gave her six months to live and she lived for six years uh that's how strong her will was and over the course of time you know she received she got cancer in her breast she got in her brain ultimately that's what killed her um and she died at 64 more or less, 63, 64, they died at the same age, um, more or less. And, you know, now that, now that I have a handle on diet and I understand how food affects you, I, it's very clear to me that they did it to themselves. They could, my, my grandmother's oldest sister, Adeline, just passed away two years ago at 93. So my grandmother could have made it, had she known. And my grandmother, unfortunately, my family was very heavily invested in the real way you make food. I mean, they, use, they used lard. They used, you know, they, any cut of meats. They didn't care about fat. They didn't care about any of that. It was just the way you prepared food, and that's the way you ate it. And I, I'm convinced that that's what ultimately did them in. Um, and you said that when your grandmother got her diagnosis, there was some mention. And obviously you were still young because you were still early teenager when she passed. And that must have been super hard for you, that being a mother figure in your life. But you started to hear a little, a little whisper of like, maybe this could be diet related. Tell me a little bit more about what you heard. And had anybody in the family ever 
understood this? Was, was there ever any talk before that, that, hey, maybe we should start eating a little bit healthier or, you know, our diet might influence our health? No, there was none of that. Uh, the first time I ever heard it uh, was when we went to visit her colon cancer doctor. I don't know what title that would have. Uh, but he was, I remember he was on uh, Central Park West. I remember as a kid going, I liked going to his, his office because they were beautiful. That, that part of Manhattan was so beautiful. And I remember thinking, I'm like, how awful it is that I'm learning about Manhattan like this. Like, I'm going to talk about my grandmother. And I was, unfortunately, at, at that age, I mean, when, when we were going to, to visit her colon cancer doctor, I must have been 11. And, you know, I was the little man of the house. I mean, it was me and my mom, my grandmother by then. My uncle Tony had moved out and, and uh, he had married. So it was just me, her, and my grandmother. And um, we went to the doctor. And, you know, I remember sitting there not, I was included in the meeting. And though, although in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have been. Because uh, it was kind of a heavy conversation, but I was allowed there. And he told us, he said, um, he said, look, the, the type of cancer that your grandmother has um, is a direct result of eating red meat. That's what he said. He said, it's a lifetime of eating red meat. He said, the only animals on the planet that should eat red meat are lions and tigers and big cats. Because they have a, they have a dietary system that's made for that. Everybody else shouldn't. And when you do, these are the types of cancers that you can get. And I remember he said that to my mother and I. And um, I remember thinking, like, how, how strange that he's talking about cats. Like, it, it was so alien that the food could actually harm you that we, I didn't know what he was talking about. And my mother, at, at the same time, I mean, she took it to heart. I mean, she understood it because she was older. But it was all news to us. And I remember when I went home, I was like, why, why on earth is he telling this, this now? Like, it's too late. She has it. Like, why, didn't we, why weren't we told years ago to, to lower our intake or to eliminate it altogether? It just, it wasn't done in the 70s. And I don't know. I mean, the, the more I read about it, the more I get angry about it, because you start to see that these research, this, this science behind food is 70, 80 years old. So they, they kind of knew that there were adverse effects, but it's either, I, I don't want to say they didn't care. I don't think it's a question of not caring. I just don't think, I don't think that the idea of controlling it to, to make your life longer and healthier was even part of the uh, equation back then. I just think that just like, I mean, if you think about the social security system, right, we're all supposed to, when it was invented, we're all supposed to die at 62 and 63 so that you never deplete social security. And that doesn't happen now because we live longer. So I think maybe that was the kind of thinking back then, like you're not supposed to live that long, so it's okay to eat all these things even though they make you sick. I don't know, I'm not smart enough to, to figure that out, but I remember as a child, it was, it was a shock to me. And then after that, we never thought about it again. I mean, I kept eating the same things I always ate and my mother did and our family did because you just figured it's a, it's a one-off, like it's not gonna happen again. And that's not true. I mean, what's true is that you will make yourself sick and these things will metast uh, these things will come to fruition. And if you don't do something about it, you're, you're just on that path to make yourself sick. Yeah, well, and nothing else around you was changing, right? You were just a kid. I mean, you weren't responsible for the grocery shopping and the cooking at that point. So 
if nothing else changed around you, your culture didn't change, the practices didn't change, you just keep doing the same thing just because that's your paradigm, right? So it's just easy to keep doing what you've always done and just hope that nothing else bad happens. But I know that must have hit you hard. And even as a little kid, you could be like, wait, isn't this backwards? Like, shouldn't we have known about this first and try to prevent it? Like, even as a kid, you understood that prevention is so important, which is amazing. Kids can understand stuff like that, you know, but it takes so long for us to try at when we're adults to make these changes to our lifestyle. Well, so your, your grandmother, unfortunately she passed. And so then lots of time went by, you kept living your same lifestyle and then you encountered your own problem. So tell me a little bit about what happened to you and the experience you had. Well, I continued to cook uh, the recipes that I had that were left to me by my grandmother. Uh, you know, largely, I mean, at that point is really just to remember her, I suppose. I mean, it was when you transition from, from child to adult, you, you tend to leave a lot of things behind that you don't mean to. And, uh, I, I'm not like that. I, I like to keep everybody with me. So for me, I'm Cuban. I eat Cuban food, and I wanted to get better at making Cuban food, so I cooked it all my life, okay? And I, I honed my craft, and I got better and better at it, and I would have parties, and life went on, and you kind of never thought about the health consequences when you were sitting there eating, a, you know, eating pork, rice, beans, and yuca every Christmas. It, it never dawns on you. And then one day, and oddly enough, it was, it was, well, let me back up. I've been practicing judo for about 27 years, okay? And I was heavily wrestling and fit in that time period when I realized that I had a problem. So I was in the best shape of my life. And I started getting these, I, I would say around 36 or 37 years old, I started getting these gout attacks. Um, and at first, I thought I'd just hurt my, my toe in judo class, or I heard, I heard it in the competition because the pain was intense. It was very hard. I mean, I wouldn't be able to, the first attack was the mildest one, but it wasn't mild at all. Just relatively speaking, it was mild. Uh, but you know, it was this intense pain in my foot and I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, well, maybe I practiced too hard or I pivoted on that toe and I did something. I mean, I'm riddled with injuries. So for me, it's, it's commonplace for something to hurt every single day. Um, but then like the third attack, and it happened like it was on a Monday, and then by the following Monday, I had another attack. And then by Wednesday, I had the worst attack. And on Wednesday, I was like, this cannot be an injury because it's becoming more intense. And this one, th this last attack had me bedridden. Like I couldn't get out of bed because the pain in my toe was so intense that I couldn't even talk to my girlfriend who was living with me at the time. So I decided to go to this doctor, an urgent care doctor, because my doctor wasn't available for a week or two. And um, I had to make an appointment. So I saw this lady. And for the life of me, this woman changed my life. And I cannot remember her name. And I have tried to look her up. I can, if I see her in the street, I'll recognize her, but I can't remember her name. And she told me. She, she looked at my toe. And my toe, when I showed up, was red and swollen. And it looked like it hurt. Like it, I wasn't making it up. Like it was a lot of pain. And she said, look, uh, you have gout. I don't need to give you a blood test. She's like, I can prescribe medicines to you that'll take away the symptoms. Uh, but the underlying cause of your symptom is your diet. 
And now for a very important message. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family. DrYami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. She said, if you're having gout attacks this severe now, you're going to have to consider being a vegan uh, because gout attacks, and she mentioned kidney stones and prostate inflammation are all related. And she said that you, you're, you, me, I have a genetic disposition to have these triggers get released with your diet. So your body's trying to warn you, right? It warns you with the gout. I mean, I don't see how you're supposed to make the connection with your toe and the food, but it warns you with the gout. And if you ignore it, you start developing sister ailments. And she mentioned a kidney stone, which oddly enough I had had. And then I never had prostate problems, but my father suffers from them. And to this day, he still suffers from prostate problems. Uh, she said all those things are passed down genetically. So she's like, it's not that you're sick with these things. It's not that you have bad genetics. It's that the, the food that you're bringing into the machine is causing your machine to trigger these things, and they're supposed to be warning signs. Now, when she told me that, I didn't believe her. I didn't want to believe her. I thought that was like the worst news in the world, was that I had to become a vegan because I had to give up everything. So. You know, there was a time period there where I was kind of soul searching, like, what, what am I going to do? Do I have to accept that maybe I'm just going to have to eat this way and get sick like everybody else in my family and, and die? Or is there a way to change? And that, was, that wasn't easy to, to figure out. Um, and quite frankly, I mean, there's lots of good vegan food out there, but it's not Cuban food. I had no way of, and there's not even Spanish food that you can say is vegan. There's no cuisine cookbooks. So that was part of, that was like the hardest thing is trying to transition that because I didn't want to give it up. So I went to my other doctor, which I'm sure you read about if, if you read the introduction to my book, to my, to my um, not the, the normal doctor, the everyday doctor. Your primary care. My primary care, I'm sorry. I, I couldn't think of the term. And he told me the complete opposite. <laughs> It was the complete opposite of what she said. She said, no, he, he, and he, he acknowledged it. He said, no, look, diet, diet plays a big role. He's like, but it's very hard to, to just give up, you know, meat and, and be plant-based. Most people can't do it. That's what he said to me. And he was, he was your typical older school doctor. Like, he was a heavy-set Italian man. You know, you can tell that he was a doctor most of his life. He had a practice. He was a nice man. But the advice that he gave me was com complete contradictory. He, he prescribed me medicine immediately. He said, you can try, you know, to give up the animal protein. But like I said, it's most people can't do it. So here's the prescriptions. And you know, at the age of 36, I already had like four pills I had to take for my health. One of them was a cholesterol pill, the gout pill, a blood pressure pill. And like I said, before I even started this part of the conversation, I was in the best shape of my life. I mean, I was running six miles a day. I was wrestling every week. I was going to competitions and then boom, uh, all of a sudden I got handed these ailments. 
And I couldn't, I couldn't accept it in my head because I, I felt young. I mean, literally, I would tell people all the time that I could, I could fall off a building, land, get up, and go to work. That's how good I felt. And now all of a sudden, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm on track for heart disease. It didn't seem real to me. And it was a shock. And I, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like arrogant or, 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 or a braggart, but I, I'm not the kind of person that doesn't fight. So I had to find a way to get around this. And that's how I arrived at writing the cookbook. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so weird. And it, it, it sneaks up on you in ways that you don't think about. Like, you don't realize that it's not just that you're sick today. It's an accumulation, right? So over time, your organs get you know, weighed down by this diet that you have. And you're doing it to yourself. And that was the epiphany that I had. And luckily for me, my, uh, one of my best friends was going through this transition too. Like we, and we didn't plan it. He was doing it on his own and I was doing it on my own. Then we got together and we were like, hey, look, this happened to me. And he was like, look, this happened to me. Maybe we should start thinking about becoming vegetarian or vegan. And when I say thinking about it, we had no idea what any of it meant. We had zero idea. The, the concept of being plant-based was completely new to us. I, I thought it would be a life of just pushing kale and artichokes around on a plate. That's what I thought veganism was, or a smoothie, you know, that kind of thing, which I think lots of people think it's like that. Uh, but it doesn't have to be. It could, it could be as hearty, as, as fattening as you want to make it. But it does, it is, it does wonders for your health. I mean, I, I can't. I can't express it enough. I mean, I tell anybody who will listen to me that the best thing you can do for yourself or for anybody else is to convince them to give up all those animal products. Because the, how you feel is immediate. It's an amazing thing to, to, to go through. Like, I remember my skin got better. My hair got better. Weight just slipped off. I was never hungry. I was never tired. And this was all, like, in the first month. So... It's the miracle cure, and it's, the, it's so simple, and nobody knows about it, it seems. And if they know about it, they scoff at it, as if somehow you're inferior because you won't eat meat. I mean, it's, it's the silliest thing in the world, but yeah. Well, and, and I think what's, there's a few things that are so fascinating. One is it seems like when you went to the PCP, it would have just been easy to just accept what he said and be like, okay, well, I get to keep my meat and I can just take these pills, you know, because he said so. He said it's going to be too hard, so I'm not going to be able to do it. But you did the opposite. You kind of wanted to hear that. But I think part of you was like, wait a second, there, there's got to be something here because this lady said the opposite. And so there was part of your brain that was intrigued. Like, I, I want to just accept what he says and just keep living this lifestyle, but part of you knew that there was something more there, you know? Yep. Other thing that I think is fascinating is you admit that you felt great. You thought you felt great, but you not only had a big warning sign with the gout that sounds incredibly painful. I hope that I never experienced that kind of pain. Um, but then you had these hidden things going on. You had the cholesterol, the high blood pressure that you had no clue until you went, right? Then they mm -hmm. discovered not only do you have gout, but you have this and this, and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, so these telling things, but you thought you felt great. But what you're telling me is 
when you, after you transitioned, you felt even better. So now looking back at what you thought was great, do you think that it was just, you had adapted to that and you thought you felt great, but you didn't feel as good as you could have? Tell me a little bit more about that. I, I think that in general, people feel great when physically they feel in shape, right? That, that's, what it, that's what it means, right? In shape means that your clothes fit you. And being physically fit means you're physically fit. So I was physically fit. I could wrestle for hours. I could run for an hour. And I, in my brain, I knew that I was supposed to be healthy, right? Everything, everything was lining up. I mean, I was doing everything. I wasn't overweight. I was strong as could be. But then when I, when I changed my diet, and that's, that's just the key. Like all, it's so crazy. Not that, and I'm not discounting exercise. You have to exercise. You have to keep fit. But if you didn't and you just became vegan, you would have similar results. You would, you know, all your internal functions would improve immediately. And I never knew that. Like, I never knew that I could feel better than I did. Like, for example, uh, back then, if I lifted weights, and I used to lift a lot more weights than I do now as I had more time on my hands. You know, if you, if you increase your weight and you, and, and you go through an exercise routine I, would, I remember getting so sore for days. You couldn't trust my chest. I couldn't touch my biceps. Now I lift weights, and there's never any pain. You're fatigued, but there's none of that soreness that you get. You recover almost immediately. I mean, on almost every level, internally, externally, you feel better. And it's almost like, um, gosh, how do, I, how do I say it without coming across as kind of corny? It's almost like spiritually you're better. Everything internally functions better. You know, even your internal clocks, like you don't need as much sleep. I'm never tired. When I go to work at two o'clock after I have lunch, I'm never sleepy. I remember after lunch, you used to fall apart. Just wanting to fall asleep between two and three o'clock. Doesn't happen anymore. You don't get those incredible hunger pangs. That's one thing that I noticed immediately. Like, I am not starving ever. I'm hungry, but I'm never like, I never get those pains that I used to get. Everything improves across the board. And now I realize that what I was feeling was just physically fit. I wasn't feeling good because how could I? I mean, if I was consuming all that. And how I feel now, I mean, I'm 49 years old. I feel like, a, like I'm in my 30s. I feel healthy. And I, that's another thing too that people don't realize. Mentally, you let go of a lot of baggage. Like I don't worry about my health anymore. I don't worry about heart disease. I don't worry, well, should I shovel the snow because I'll have a heart attack? I don't worry about all that because I know that all the systems are running as optimally as they can. And it's just a relief. It's, it's, like, it's like taking a burden off of you. And uh, it's, that's, that's probably the most amazing thing. I think if most people did that, I think every aspect of your life improves because, you know, all these things that you worry about are lifted. I'm not saying that they solve all your problems. I mean, if, you know, if you're still broke, you're broke. If you still, you know, divorce, you're divorced. But at the very least, you don't have to worry about those things. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think that if you're not a vegan, you're just not informed. And I feel bad for you, that you're not informed because you're missing out on a bunch of things and you're holding out, you're holding on to 
things that are only going to make your life worse, even though you think it's making your life better. And that's how I look at it. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm proof of it. It's not, I'm not just talking about it. I'm living it. Yeah. And I'll tell anybody that'll listen, you have to do it and just do it for a month. In a month's time, you will realize that everything that I'm saying is true. So I love it. I love it. You're so passionate. So, you know, there was a time though, that you believe that being vegan was just going to be like all salads and smoothies and uh, it's just going to be so hard and I'm not going to be able to eat my food. So it took you a little time to inform yourself on it, but also to learn how to make some of your favorite foods. So tell me a little bit about that time period as you were transitioning and learning more about it and figuring out how you were going to make it work for your lifestyle. Cause you wanted to still keep that, you know, you wanted to keep your Cuban food. You wanted to keep your favorite things. So tell me how that went. Well, that was, that was a major struggle. Um, I think there's more available now because some time has passed. Uh, but back then, I mean, we're talking about seven or eight years ago. I don't think it was as popular as it is now. It seems to be getting very popular now. Um, but back then, you know, when I, when I first started, I was like, okay, so if I have to do this, I want to do it right. And I want to be able to make things. And I, want to, I don't want to buy boxes of food because even if it's vegan, you don't know what's really in it. You know, you don't know how much salt is in it. You don't know who's handled it. You don't, there's things that you don't know. And I'd prefer to just make it myself if I can't, okay? So that was a challenge because there, there were no, there was no cuisine cookbook that was vegan. Not my cuisine, certainly no Cuban cookbooks. There was no Italian cookbooks that I could find. There was no cookbooks that, you know, taught you how to cook a certain thing. There was plenty of cookbooks that taught you how to, how to make stews that were vegan and, and cauliflower steaks and, and all that has merit, but it wasn't my culture. Okay, and, and I, have a, I have a strong connection to the food I eat. I mean, I, you know, I, I, think, I think I'm better for it. And I think most people, I think most Latin people have that. You know, Latin people, Italian people, it's, it's a centerpiece of your life. So giving that up as well was hard for me. So after, after looking and looking and looking, and I decided I was looking at my grandmother's you know, her box of recipes. And I'm like, I guess I'm ne never going to be able to eat that stuff again. I have to move on. And then it dawned on me. I'm like, well, why don't I just see if there's a way that I can turn these things into vegan and see if it works. So I started investigating. I started, um, I mean, I never knew what seitan was until I went to a vegan restaurant in New York City. And I had, uh, I had short ribs that were made out of seitan that were unbelievable. Uh, so then I realized, okay, there is a meat substitute that I could use. So seitan is one of them. My friend Chuck, who was um, the person that I mentioned before that was becoming vegan at the same time, even though we weren't talking about it, um, he introduced me to soy curls, which is uh, a soy product that mimics shredded beef. Um, cauliflower is an amazing substitute for meat, too. I, I would never have thought it eight years ago. But if you prepare it right, it's passable um, to the extent that people who aren't vegan like it. Um, so with those three elements, I just started experimenting and seeing what dishes worked and what dishes didn't work. Uh, for the most part, I found that most of it worked, um, especially in Cuban cuisine. I mean, Cuban cuisine is, um, it's very sauce based. Okay. So everything is a sauce. So it doesn't really matter 
what protein you put in there, as long as the sauce, you know, creates the condiment, that's all that really matters. And, and it's, it worked better than I ever thought it would. Um, and I know this to be true, and I know that my recipes are authentic, and I know my recipes are killer, because I have an aunt, Magali, who is my, my father's sister, who is a hardcore Cuban lady. Okay, she knows how the food is supposed to taste, how it's supposed to look, how it's supposed to smell. She's an amazing cook herself. And I remember telling her, I'm like, I'm going to turn into a, a vegetarian or a vegan and I'm going to make these recipes and I want you to be my guinea pig. I want you to taste my recipes and tell me if I'm on mark, if I'm off mark. So little by little with her, I got to tell you, I mean, it wasn't that hard. She, the first few recipes, she was amazed. I, I made her, you speak Spanish, right? Okay, so I made her carne molida. Carne molida to us is called picadillo. Picadillo is a, is a recipe that's a very saucy ground beef recipe, right? I made it out of cauliflower granulated cauliflower that I granulated. And I made my grandmother's recipe for picadillo using cauliflower, and I fed it to her. She didn't know it was cauliflower. So I said, you see, this is what I'm talking about. If I can change these things, then I'm not missing out on anything. Right? So <laughs> coincidentally, she was having, I mean, she's, back then she was in her 60s. And of course, her cholesterol was very high too, and she was having problems with the medication. The cholesterol medication was affecting her joints, and she was uncomfortable all the time. And I said, look, I'm doing this, and you're, you're seeing how I do it. Why don't you try it? Just do it for 30 days, please, because she's my favorite aunt. She's like my second mom. And uh, she, was, she was so resistant to it that it was unbelievable. I said, look, I can solve your problems. Just do it for 30 days. I begged her. And I said, I'll bring you the food. I'll show you how to do it. So she did it for 30 days. And in 30 days' time, her cholesterol dropped 90 points. That to her, that was enough. She became convinced. And now she's a vegetarian. She's my biggest fan. She and she, now she's starting to learn how to cook. Well, not, not that she's starting to learn. She's starting to use more and more of the vegan products that are out there to make the dishes like I make. Except she does her spin on them because every Cuban dish is different depending upon the household that you go to. Everybody has their own spin on it. Um, but I convinced her. And if I can convince her, I can convince anybody. Hey humans, I know you want to eat healthier but feel strapped for time. And even the thought of meal planning and cooking stresses you out. Well, have you considered trying a meal kit service? Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, delivering pre-portioned and prepped quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients. Green Chef sends organic, fresh produce, and chef-designed recipes in every box for satisfying, nourishing, and convenient meals that make it easy to stick to a healthy living routine. Find recipes for every lifestyle, including plant-based diets. Green Chef delivers quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients, including low added sugar and sodium smart options. You get to choose from 80 plus flavor packed options that allow you to take back time in your kitchen with dinner ready in 30 minutes and lunch in 10. Try 15 plus new recipes every week. But here's the best part. Green Chef delivers everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, and delicious meals directly to your doorstep. Each meal kit includes pre-measured ingredients, as well as some produce that comes already pre-chopped and custom sauces that are pre-made in-house. 
They also provide the recipe cards, and the meals are really simple to make. It's a delicious, fresh, home-cooked meal without the hassle. What I love the most about Green Chef is that it takes the stress out of cooking. The recipes are easy to follow and everything you need is included, so even the less experienced cooks in your house can make a delicious home-cooked meal. It's perfect for those seasons in your life that you're really busy with your kids' sports and school events. Hello, spring! And time is limited, especially if you want fresh, home-cooked, healthy meals to put on the table. So if you're feeling frustrated by the lack of time to eat healthy and you are ready to try Green Chef and see how easily you can integrate it into your healthy lifestyle, go to greenchef.com forward slash I am human five zero and use code I am human five zero to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com forward slash I am human five zero and use the code I am human five zero to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Equilibria is a woman-owned wellness brand with products intended to bring your mind and body back in harmony. They consider themselves a by women and for women company, and they now offer a nutrient-dense green powder called Daily Nutrigreens. Myself and my staff here at Nourish Wellness all tried the Daily Nutri-Greens and we loved it. The Daily Nutri-Greens contain an immune antioxidant and detox blend along with prebiotics, probiotics, and over 35 fruits and veggies. It also contains other important nutrients such as B12, iron, zinc, and selenium. The Daily Greens are certified organic and all you have to do is mix it with water, but you can also easily add to your smoothies, your oatmeal, or your baked goods. The Daily Nutri-Greens are vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. Another bonus is that the packaging is compostable. Yay! When I tried the Apple Banana Daily Nutri-Greens, I was surprised by the pleasant and mild flavor. It was easy to prepare and drink and didn't leave any aftertaste, and I felt great afterwards. It's really easy to create a daily ritual around your green drink, integrate it into your daily self-care routine. A green powder is one way to fill the gap in daily nutrition and is an easy and convenient way to get in your greens. These powders are a great way to add more nutrients into your diet during busy times, travel, and transitions in life when you don't have time or access to fresh green veggies. If you're interested in trying Equilibria's daily Nutrigreens, head to myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, that's D-R-Y-A-M-I, for 15% off Equilibria's daily Nutrigreens and much more. That's myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, D-R-Y-A-M-I, at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. 
A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. I mean, I remember it took two weeks to convince this lady to not put milk in her coffee. I was like, there has to be a, uh, uh, a plant-based milk that you can use that she's like, well, I don't like the way any of them taste. I'm like, they, they don't taste like anything. How can you not like it? The milk doesn't taste like anything. So she finally settled on coconut milk, which was her preferred. And that was like the hardest part, just getting her to realize that you can enjoy other things. And now she's a, veg she's a vegetarian. She's not quite a vegan. She, she'll eat cheese here and there. Um, but nonetheless, she's much healthier than she ever was. And I'm very happy that she converted. And, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's like a snowball effect, right? So she starts talking to her friends. So she convinced one of her friends to do it. So now, you know. It's me, her, and this friend that have now become vegetarian. So I think if you educate people and you show them that there's ways to do it, it's an easy sale. You know, you should be able to convince people. Yeah, especially you know? when it still tastes delicious. And it, like you said, it's filling. You're not experiencing distress from hunger. You know, you're feeling nice and full and satisfied. Because that's really what we want. When we want these foods, what we want is flavor. You know, we want it to taste good. We want it to feel good. So I just love that story because I could just see her all these years, her, her cafecito con leche, and you wanted to change her cafe con leche, yeah. <laughs> but you she, did it. I'm impressed with you. <laughs> That's pretty good. I love it. So, um, you know, you have your, your Aunt Magali on board, but how has the rest of your family reacted to the diet change have they made fun of you have they told you that you're not authentic cuban now what was what's <laughs> been the what's been the talk at the at the household the family well my my wife converted um which was actually she she had some amazing health benefits from it too she suffered from acne most of her life she would have periods of time where it would just i mean all her life even when in, into her 20s and 30s she would have spot acne gone disappeared completely never to never come back again um all her all her um internal values are perfect 
Um, yeah, I, I've been made fun of by Magali's children. My cousin James and her daughter Barbara will not become vegan, almost out of spite, because just to go the other way, um, which I think is stupid because you're only hurting yourself, you know? Uh, my son, I have a 17-year-old son who pays me the biggest compliment every single time I cook. Um, he's, not, he's not vegan, but he's not against it. He's 17. I mean, he doesn't really think about it. Uh, but every time I cook, like if I have a barbecue or something, and I'll, I'll cook meat for those that eat it because I'm not going to be militant about it. I mean, if you come to my house, if I invite you, and I know you're not vegan, I'll make you a hamburger on the grill or something, you know? Um, but my son almost always chooses my food, and, not, and he's not obligated to, um, over anything else because he just loves the way it tastes. And that makes me happy because that's my grandmother's food. So, you know, once again, I've captured maybe a generation. And I, I tell him all the time, I'm like, you know, I, I wrote this so that you guys, because I have three children, I have two little ones and, and my 17-year-old, you know, I want you guys to, to make this part of your lives. I mean, this is so that, so when I'm dead, you can remember that your father wrote this book and fed you all this delicious food so that you can pass it along. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you get, I get resistance a lot at work. Like, people listen and then they go, well, you know, meat's in my DNA and I can't, I can't imagine a life without meat or a life without chicken. And it's all, it's all, you know what it is? It's laziness and fear of the unknown. That's all it is. That's all it is. You're too lazy to try. Because in reality, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Nobody loved meat more than me. I quit smoking years ago. Nobody loved smoking more than I did. If I can do these things, anyone can do it. And I think that. Look, I think as a society overall, if we all ate better foods that kept us alive longer and less in the hospital, everything would cost less. There'd be less sick people, there'd be less medical costs, there'd be less of everything, I think. And it's just so simple. All you have to do is just eat differently. I love it. I love that. And, and it's true. I mean, I think everybody has to come to it in their own time, in their own way, you know, just like you had your journey. I remember being on that other side before I had my paradigm shift and really seeing veggie, even just vegetarians, like that's so strange. Like, how could you ever do that? That seems really, really hard. But it wasn't until I had my own perspective change that it opened up a whole new world. And it doesn't seem hard at all to me. I mean, it just seems like abundance and deliciousness and and health and well-being and joy so that's what it seems like to me now so it's just i just love your story because it's a whole different perspective you know but let's pivot a little bit and talk about cuban food specifically why is cuban food so unique tell me a little bit about the cultural influences on this cuisine and how it it colors the different flavors and the different dishes and in, in this type of eating well, there's a lot of layers in it. Um, if you go all the way back to Spain, right? So Cuban food is a combination of the Spanish that colonized the island, their cuisine, which was heavily influenced by the Arabic culture, right? Because the Moors conquered most of Europe. Southern Spain uh, was mostly Moorish. So you have that influence of, of that food. That's where the saffron comes from. That's where all those delicious, almost exotic flavors that are not European come from. 
that came to Cuba, and then we had the African slaves that had their influence, and you mentioned earlier that the, uh, the pig's feet and all that, that's all part of that influence. And then there was lots of Chinese migrant work workers in Cuba that had their influence on the food too. Um, and it makes uh, this unique synergy of European, Chinese, Afro-American, Arabic, and tropical, all mixed in with all these delicious combinations of foods, uh, well, I shouldn't even say foods, of spices that, you know, create sauces. That, and they're not hard sauces. I mean, you're not, you're not sitting there measuring the perfect amounts together. I mean, it all comes together. Lots of it is, 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 lots of it is flavored with sofrito, right? Latin people have sofrito, which is, you know, green peppers, onions, in some cases, tomatoes and garlic. That's your base. And then everything else comes on top of that. So it's a unique flavor of food that I think has been lost, you know, with the, with the, with the, the taking of Cuba from, uh, and put under communist rule. I think a lot of things were lost cuisine-wise. I mean, we have Miami and we have the Cuban population there, but they, it's starting to become more commercialized food that people recognize. And all the real food aren't, isn't in the forefront. Like, I, I, my, I still have, I, I wrote 100 recipes for my book. I still have about 200. And these are all a lifetime of recipes of Cuban cuisine that I think most people aren't even aware that those dishes are still there. Um, so for me, it's, it's one of, I have a few favorite foods. Cuban, by far, is my favorite. Mexican is very close. I love Mexican food. I love what Mexicans do with chilies. I mean, they just... I mean, if, if there's ever an expert on taking heat and turning it into flavor, it's the Mexicans. The Peruvians do that very well, too. Um, I'm sorry, what is your background? <laughs> I was actually laughing. I'm Panamanian, so we don't use chilies or, or even that much spice. Our food is so simple. So, but I, I love food in general. So Cuban food, oh, so delicious. But when I was reading through the recipes, I was curious about the saffron. I was like, where did the saffron come from? So that's, you explained that, but it is such a beautiful mix of all of these different cultures coming together and, and, you know, these foods. So what would you say if you had to pick, what is your all time favorite Cuban recipe? <sighs> There's a lot of favorites. I, I'm not a person that picks favorites. Um, like, I don't have a favorite color. I don't have a favorite anything. I, I enjoy everything. But if I had to pick one, I would say it's a tie. There's caldo gallego. Have you heard of caldo gallego? Mm -mm. Caldo gallego is a soup. Uh, it's a delicious soup. It's the simplest soup that you'll ever come across. Um, it, it's made with um, it's made with potatoes, turnips, onions, garlic, and um, kale. Cubans have been eating kale long before it became popular. Kale is in Ricardo Gallego. It's a soup that you make on a winter's day. It's fancy enough to serve the guests. It's a it's light, but it's heavy at the same time. If if you can follow me on that. Uh, and it's a delicious, authentic food from Spain. That's one of my favorites. Um, the other one would be, gosh, I guess Ropa Vieja would be the other one. Ropa Vieja is, um, 
do Panamanians have ropa vieja? You have something similar, I'm sure. It's like a shredded beef dish. Yeah, well, I think they do make it in Panama, but probably obviously not originated from Panama, but it is something that's eaten there. Yeah, ropa vieja, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was invented in Cuba, but it's definitely a Latin American thing because I've had it in other cultures as well. They all have their spin on it. Um, ours is, is a tomato-based sauce uh, that has white wine, um, and it's maybe has seven ingredients in it, and it comes out to be like a saucy shredded beef, except I use soy curl, so it's a saucy shredded soy curl, and you eat that with rice and uh, fried, fried platanos, mm -hmm. and that's probably, those are two of my favorite dishes ever, and they're the simplest ones. Yeah. Well, I definitely flagged that one. So there was a few that I wanted to make. And your soy curl ropa vieja was one of the ones that I wanted to make. And then the other one that I flagged was the sanduche cubano tradicional. Sanduche cubano tradicional. Because yeah. my, my husband loves sandwiches. So he really believes that he needs to just eat sandwiches all the time. So that Cuban sandwich, I'm going to make him a Cuban sandwich. Authentic. He's going to love it. He's going to be so happy. But yeah, and then you talk about yuca and platano. So that's something we really eat a lot of in Panama, like plantain all the time, yuca a lot. And so there's, you know, but I love how we just eat it plain, you know, you have this delicious sauce that goes on it and gives it even more flavor. You know, it's just so amazing. If you like platanos, do you like, uh, you like tostones? Oh, yes. We call them patacones in Panama. Pata yeah, that's what the Colombians call it, patacones. Um, there's a, a soup in the book uh, that's called, uh, what is, why can't I think of anything? It's a platano The creamed soup. one? That's the creamed mm, one? That's, that's, an excellent, that's an excellent one too, but no, it's a hardier one. It's the first soup in the soup category. It's platanos con, um, con frijoles pintones. Mm. I forgot what I called it. It used to be called the montañera, but I didn't use that title. It used to be a pork and tostong soup, but it's not anymore. Now, now it's, it's um, frijoles pintos con, con patacones, and it's in the soup. Wow. So you actually eat the tostong as part of the soup. That I think you will love that. It's, it's made with capers. It's, it's, my, it's my mother's favorite. It's delicious. So that's another one if you want to earmark something. I'm going to make it. I'm definitely going to make it. Yeah, oh, sounds so good. So I would love for you to give us some tips because obviously you're coming from this tradition, a lot of dishes, meat centric, that's part of your culture and you're a man and you know how a lot of men associate like strength and virility with meat. So for someone that feels like their head in their head, they're like, there's no way from my culture, we eat a lot of meat and I could never go vegan. There's no way I could eat my favorite foods. What tips do you have for them? Don't go vegan. Uh, start very slowly. Uh, start with vegetarian food. Okay. I find that if you're going to, I find that if you give people, you know, an ultimatum, they never take it. it. It can't be all or nothing. So for those folks that, you know, are brainwashed into thinking that that's all they can eat, you got to start them off with vegetarian dishes. Um, things that, you know, might have some animal product in it, like cheese or something to, to gradually get them going. Or maybe the other way to do it is pick a day of the week and make that a vegan day and try it. And then if, if it's not, you know, if it's not torturous for you, then do two days. 
you know, or, you know, pick a week. But the reality of it is, if you commit to it, at some point, your, your body naturally is going to reject the food that you were eating before. Because this happened to me. Like, I can't, I don't have the flavor for meat anymore. Like, I had a, um, I bought on a whim the, I don't know if you guys have them too. They're called um, Beyond Meat. It's like a pre-made burger patty. It tastes too much like meat. <laughs> I have the exact same experience. I can't eat it. I get stressed out the whole time. I'm just like, wait, is this meat or is this not? Is it meat or is it not meat? And it just doesn't yeah, taste good they, to me. They could be selling me meat. I have no idea because it, it's so close. But I realized that I don't have that, that inkling anymore. Like I don't want it anymore. And that's what happens to you. So like if you start becoming vegetarian gradually at some point, you're not going to want all that meat. So that's, that's my advice. It, it can't, if you're going to do it all or none, I, I, I'm not a big believer in cold turkey anything because I think that, that creates too much sacrifice and I think people are too selfish for that kind of sacrifice. I don't think that anyone, even when it comes to their own health, I mean, if you, if you can't do it for your own health, what makes you think that they can just go cold turkey and never eat that stuff again? So I don't, I don't think that works. I think gradually it would work. And then start dropping things off as you go. You know, I, I would start with eliminating dairy. Dairy is something that you don't necessarily have a connection to. You know, you don't have to eat the cheese. You don't have to have the milk. You don't have to, you know, there's other things that you can do. Maybe start there and you start to see that gradually you don't need it. But, you know, it really, it all comes down to fear of missing out. Like when I, when I think of, I have real life people that I know that I think they're crazy people. I have a friend of mine, okay? His wife has an ailment that involves her gallbladder. I don't know what it is. I know you're a doctor. You would probably know what it is, but I can't remember the name of it. So it came to the point where none of the medications are working for this woman anymore. And her doctor said, look, at some point, you're going to have to be vegan or else this problem is going to continue. So my friend Tom, that's his name, his wife, he's like, the doctor said this to my wife. He's like, we're Italian. I don't think we can ever be vegan. I said, Tom, do you, I mean, do you, are you really seriously considering keeping the ailments that your wife is suffering because you can't fathom a life without eating, you know, salami or cheese? I mean, think about what you're choosing. You're going to choose poor health over making a change? To me, that seems insane. I would always automatically go, okay, well, how can I improve this? What can I do? What, what, how can I make it better? Maybe even, I've even recommended, um, there's a book called, I think it's called Eat to Live. Have you seen that book? And that whole premise of the book is they have just enough animal protein to satisfy somebody. I think it's 10% of calories counted or something like that. Even something like that is better than just continuing your path. But... I think a lot of it is, is, is brainwashing. I think people just, and when I say brainwashing, I don't mean like someone straps you to a chair and brainwashes you. I think your culture over time, you don't see any, any danger in it because your parents gave you this food and your parents aren't going to do anything bad to you. So why would I think that my diet is creating these problems? And, and they do. And then you can't separate yourself from that. There's no help for you there. You know, I mean, that, that to me, like my friend, my friend Chuck, the, the person that I referred to before, uh, who started being a vegan at the same time I did, he had a big Wall Street job. And his Wall Street job 
made people, made him take clients out to steak restaurants. Steak restaurants with all the fat, all the wine, everything. It caught up to him. He had a heart attack in the Denver airport in Colorado. Okay? Had to be rushed. He doesn't live in Denver. He lives here in New Jersey. So this all happened away from his family. I mean, can you imagine the anxiety of having a heart attack in a strange place? So he has it. And the first thing, the first thing they fed him after he survived the heart attack was meat lasagna. <laughs> and he was like, how are they feeding me meat lasagna when I know that what caused me to have the heart attack is all the meat I ate? Right? So then he dedicated himself to being a super vegan. He doesn't even eat oil. He doesn't eat anything processed. He is purely plant-based whole foods, nothing in between. He reversed his heart disease. His doctors told him that there are, there's no evidence that he ever had a heart attack in his body. So if, if it's really true that, that things like heart disease are paper tigers that you can control and get rid of, why on earth would you choose to continue to do that? Because you, you have to have a hamburger? Because you have to have sausage and peppers? Like, I don't, doesn't your life mean more to you than, than the cheeseburger? And these are the things that I, I mean, I guess I was like that before, but I don't think I was because I was willing to change. And it's the idea, I guess if, if, if you create something that fills in that gap, then it's probably easier. And that's kind of what I did for myself, right, by creating the book. But I mean, when I talk to people that aren't vegan, it, it seems like, like such an easy thing to do. And it's the simplest thing that you can control. Right? You're not asking anyone to do anything for you. You're just doing it yourself. Then the body does the rest of it. And wouldn't it be better not to have the ailments? You know, like, doesn't it seem confusing to you that people still choose to do it? Yeah, but, you know, we're human. I, I, and I think just like we were talking about the, at the beginning of this conversation is that whenever your entire culture is saying differently, when it's part of the culture to overeat and eat all these processed foods. And then there's other people telling you, well, you just need to eat a bunch of meat and no carbs and that's healthy. It's confusing <laughs> for some people. And, you know, I think you hear what you want to hear, right? If you believe that it's going to be hard, it's not going to taste good and you're going to feel deprived. There's no way you're going to inch towards that, which is why I take every opportunity to tell people that I do not suffer eating this way. And I love food. I've always loved food. I was born loving food and I love my food now more than I ever have. It's delicious. It's satisfying. And it, it's amazing. Like I'm not eating grass. You know, people think we're just eating grass and cardboard. Yeah. It's just not like that. So I think if more people understood that it really isn't a sacrifice, the only sacrifice is that beginning part of the journey where you have to learn. You have to learn, you have to start changing your habits. But then after that, there's no sacrifice in flavor. There's no sacrifice in satisfaction. There's no sacrifice in being able to celebrate with your family. You can do all of this. You can write an entire vegan Cuban cookbook and you don't have to sacrifice that, those memories and those traditions in your culture. So, I mean, I love how you put it. And I think sometimes when you're on the other side, it just seems like, why doesn't everybody think this way? But when you're still in the beginning part of your journey, you realize that, you know, we're just human and this is the world we live in. So the more you can do to talk to people about your experience, the more people's ideas will start to change. 
You know, they'll be like, well, if he can do it, maybe I can too. You know, maybe it's not as hard as I thought it would be. So thank you for doing what you do, which leads me to the next question is, what do you wish more people knew? I'll tell you, honestly, what I, what I wish people knew is that there is no such thing as animal protein. That is a marketing thing designed to make you buy meats. The only creatures on the earth that make protein are plants. They take nitrogen and combine it with, I guess, oxygen, and they create amino acids. And then whatever animal grazes on that grass absorbs that protein. And then when you kill that animal, you're doing nothing but eating recycled plant protein. And you're absorbing all the problems of eating that animal flesh for the sake of getting protein. Which, by the way, you know, if, if I mean, you're a doctor, so you're gonna know more, much more about this than I would. Every study that I read, you know, the amount of protein that you really need as a percentage of calories is like six to 10%. And that is well beyond, that's well below the American experience. I mean, people eat 35, 40, 50% protein, and it's not even protein, it's animal flesh that has protein in it. So it's no wonder that you get sick. But that's how it's positioned. Like my sister, I talk, about my, I talk about my sister a lot because she's, um, she's a, a CrossFit person. So she's, she looks great. I mean, there's no doubt. She's got the, the abdomen. She looks fit. She's very strong. And she looks beautiful. But I know that on the inside, she's sick because, you know, there's no way in the world that you can live on a diet of eggs and, you know, and, and lean meats. And that's all you eat, you know, with the occasional leafy vegetable to fill in. That, that's not, and, and she does that because she thinks that that's healthy. She thinks that she's getting her protein, but she, no one talks about the adverse effects of all that animal flesh that you're eating. And, that's, and, that, and, and it's the animal flesh that makes you sick because if you look across the board, I mean, if you eat fish flesh, it makes you sick. If you eat chicken flesh, it makes you sick. Any animal, pick it. It doesn't matter. There is none that doesn't make you sick. So if we know all, well, I mean, we know it, right? The unsuspecting person doesn't know this. So they're just thinking that, like I was, right? When I was in the best shape of my life, eating whatever I wanted to eat, I never realized yeah. that I was sick. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. It's because it's misinformation. So when I told my sister that animals don't make protein, she's like, what do you mean? They're made of protein. I'm like, no, no, they're not. They're not. They don't make it at all. They absorb it. It's, second, it's recycled protein, plant protein that you're eating. So why not just eat the plants? You know, but they don't know that. And if you look in the literature, I mean, if you Google right now, you know, protein, the first thing that comes up, I'm sure is some kind of article talking about some kind of meat product. Mm -hmm. It's never an article about plants. And people think, oddly, that plant protein and animal protein are two separate things and that one is a higher caliber of protein than the other, which is ridiculous because this one doesn't have protein. This is the protein. It's backwards, you know? I mean, think about, unfortunately, in this country, and I don't know about other countries, but in this country, we have a culture of marketing that is constantly trying to convince you to buy their product, hook or crook, whether it's good for you or not. And that's, you know, when you do a quick search, that's whoever pays the most to put their product in front of you, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. The truth doesn't come out. The product that they want to sell you comes out. And that's what most people base, you know, their understanding of, of, of um, nutrition on that. Yeah. 
and you have to dig a lot deeper. Like I've told people, I do all my own research. So if I look at a documentary like uh, Forks Over Knives, right, one of the famous uh, vegan documentaries, you know, at the end in the credits, they list all their sources. Contact those people. Send them emails. Ask for the research reports. They'll send them to you. Read it for yourself. Get a real understanding of your biology and, and, and how these foods affect you. I mean, think about it. It's so, we know more about other things that don't affect our health than we do about the things that affect our health. Mm -hmm. It should be the other way around. We should know exactly what we're putting into ourselves so that the machine functions right. Yes. We don't do that, yeah. you know? No. And if you do that, it eliminates a lot of problems in the future. Mm-hmm. No, I think that the protein discussion is, it's one of those, it's, it's one of my pet peeves for sure, but there's a lot of education that still needs to happen on it. And the one thing that people don't understand is that we don't need all that protein, not only because it's not necessary, but could, it could potentially be harmful. In fact, eating a lower protein diet might actually promote longevity. And a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> so, I mean, we're just like the more protein, the better, and there can never be too much. And that's just not true because especially animal protein, it can be very taxing on the body, can be taxing on the kidneys. Um, it could create a lot of problems. And also, like you said, most of the time when people are eating, quote, protein, it's packaged in animal flesh, which also comes with saturated fat. And it's that saturated fat along with the protein that's causing us problems, you know, with our heart disease and our diabetes and all of that. So it, yeah. it's more complicated than people think. They just think that they're just getting this protein. It can only be good and it's helping them build muscle. But really, that's not really what's happening. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation and you, you're just so inspiring and I'm so glad that you took it upon yourself to take these recipes and make them in a way that's more health promoting, but still preserves your culture and the memories and the traditions. I know that a lot of listeners are going to want to get their hands on your book. So can you please tell us how my listeners can connect with you and where they can find your book? Well, I have a website. Okay, it's called uh, vegancuano.com. Uh, you can purchase the book through there. Uh, there's a link to Amazon, but most of the sales are on Amazon. Uh, just go to amazon.com and put in my title. It's delicious, it's vegan, it's Cuban, it comes up. I have seven positive reviews. The book has only been around since October. Um, but listen, I'll take the reviews as they come. Um, I'm fairly confident in the recipes. I've I know that they're good. I mean, I don't want to sound like a braggart, but I know I fed it to enough people to know that you're going to like it if you, if you have the book. Um, you know, the, these are the recipes that I grew up with. They're old recipes. They're from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. They're generations in my family. And you will eat satisfying, healthy food, and you will not feel like you're missing out on anything if you follow the simple instructions of how to make the food. And, you know, I can't guarantee that you'll love Cuban food, but I'm pretty certain that you'll get, you know, I'm pretty sure you'll like it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's lots of things in there. That's another thing that I like about my book. There's appetizers, there's soups, there's salads, there's side dishes. There's what used to be fish dishes. There's what used to be meat dishes, what used to be pork dishes. All of them are unique flavors. And all of these things you can buy in the supermarket. Now, granted, 
my book is not, you know, have a meal cooked in 25 minutes. It's not that kind of book. Okay. It's a book that's meant for families. So the recipes are bigger. Uh, the food takes an hour to prepare, you know, something normal. You know, I, I don't trust food that's ready in 20 minutes anyway. But they're all wholesome, good recipes. And you know what? You can also play with the proportions. You know, you can take out things if you don't want certain things in there. I mean, it, it won't compromise the flavor that much because the, as long as you have the key principal ingredients, it all comes out pretty reasonable. I love it. All right. So vegancubano.com. You can find out more about his book or even search on it on amazon.com. So my last ask of you is to please leave us with one call to action for the week. So what is one thing that we can do this week to improve our lives? Remember that everything is temporary. So whatever you're struggling with, Whatever's going on with the economy, whatever's going on with your job, whatever's going on with anything in your life, it's all temporary. It will pass. I love it. That's a beautiful philosophy. And it's so true because the one thing that's constant is change, right? So whatever, whatever's happening now, it's guaranteed to be different later. Yep. Well, Ray, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on Veggie Doctor Radio, sharing your story, some of your history, your family traditions. I just loved learning about it. You are such a positive influence on this world, and I'm very grateful for you. Thank you so much, and have a very plantastic day. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Veggie Lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Stay big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big